Just a heads up for those with young ears around that this episode contains a few swear words, so we wanted to give you a warning. Also of note, one of our guests in today's episode mentions thoughts of suicide. If that's something that you struggle with, just know that it's okay to turn this episode off. We'll include some links to resources in the episode notes if you need help. Just know that you're not alone. You are listening to No Justice with the John Howard Society of Saskatchewan. Conversations around justice and advocacy for those at risk of injustice. Welcome to the No Justice Podcast with the John Howard Society of Saskatchewan. My name is Blair Roberts. I'm your host. We're really glad you're here and thanks for listening. Today we're going to start a series called Life After Prison. We want to explore the different elements of life for those re-entering the outside world and find out what we can do as a society to help those exiting prison be successful. So we want to explore the various challenges while also taking a look at the various solutions of reintegrating back into the world after you've been in prison. There's a connection between homelessness and incarceration that's undeniable. Studies have shown that if you've been to prison, you're more likely to have had an experience of homelessness. And if you've been homeless, then you're more likely to have an experience of prison. It's a cycle that's hard to break. Too many folks are released from prison and enter into homelessness due to a lack of supports and a lack of housing options. In one study done by the John Howard Society of Toronto, Up to 32% of surveyed inmates expected to be homeless upon release, while another 12% indicated that they didn't know where they were going to go. The place that they called home before entering prison might not be available to them anymore. They've likely been evicted, or the people that they lived with have moved on if they don't have immediate family to support them. Not to mention it's pretty difficult to pay rent. Well, actually it's impossible to pay rent when you're locked up. Maybe the place that they lived in was a bad situation and not a safe place for them to return to. So when you're released, you're faced with all these challenges that can either lead you into homelessness or right back to prison. And if we're serious about rehabilitation and wanting people to be successful upon their release and not return to prison, then there must be more that we can do to set them up for success. Today we're going to hear stories from the front line of post-release reintegration and the supports that are needed and the supports that are missing, specifically as it relates to housing and homelessness. This episode is all about people who are helping the formerly incarcerated find housing and about those who have struggled to find housing and supports upon their release. Our first guest today is Kaylee Lafontaine. She's the new executive director at Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan our sister organization. They work with women, including trans men and women who have had involvement with corrections. I wanted to talk to Kaylee about the different supports they offer and about a few specific cases that have happened in Saskatchewan lately related to housing, homelessness, and incarceration. I spent 
like 12 years of my life as a correctional officer and with that comes community and with that comes a different perspective. It's a unique situation that I'm in coming into not only this organization, but the position that I'm in. It's very different, right? Going from that to now executive director of an organization that is very much based on prison abolition. So our organization focuses on the before, the during, and after of incarceration. We provide support through the court system, through normally before COVID in-prison services, and largely the reintegration and community uh, work that we do as well. I've just been absolutely blessed to work with the group of women that I work with. Uh, Speaking from your perspective, can you point to any unique challenges that your clients face when they're leaving corrections around housing, around finding the support that they need to be successful and not fall back into that cycle of recidivism? There's sort of two streams here. Let's say that uh, there's a client that's housed at the Women's Reintegration Unit. Previous to the changes with income support, people housed at CTRs or the reintegration units were able to receive social assistance. With the changes, that's no longer the case. So that provides in itself a challenge. In 2019, The government of Saskatchewan changed our social assistance program to the Saskatchewan Income Support Program. As Kaylee's discussing this, she talks about the program using an abbreviation, SIS, SIS. My understanding with those changes that they're saying, well, the corrections, that that part portion of the government is funding for them to live there and providing them food, etc. However, I think and I hope that one day I'll be able to provide some advocacy on that specific part of the CIS program because that's really detrimental. I believe that they should still be able to receive at least the basic support because they're now in the community. They don't have any income. They've been incarcerated for who knows how long. They're going to be looking for a job, but every person who's in one of the reintegration units, like their case plan is completely unique to them and their needs are completely unique, but nobody deserves to be in the community with no money in their pocket and no even spare change to make those necessary steps to get back on their feet. So that's something that is really frustrating for me and has been since they made that change. The difficulty with that, a person is housed at the reintegration unit. Um, they're, yes, they're living there, but they are going to be released at a certain date and they're looking for housing. They have been incarcerated, so they don't necessarily have landlord references or often people who are incarcerated don't necessarily even have character references that they're able to provide. And it can be a barrier if you're sending a landlord reference that is coming from a correctional facility. And I give the director absolutely the most props and she does provide landlord references, but when it comes down to it, I think people in the community see that and that can become a barrier for folks to get set up for housing. And the other stream is if you're incarcerated and you're just being released to the community because you don't have enough support set up, you can't view houses from an institution. Uh, You can't make a bunch of phone calls from the Telmate system. I've never seen somebody call up a landlord and successfully have a place for them to stay once they're back in the community. 
as a human being, we should have the choice of which community we're moving into and, and where we're headed. But that's a right that's completely denied on that level of being incarcerated and then coming back into the community. And, and I mean, that's on all levels, right? That's whether you're remanded, you can be remanded for up to eight months. Now you tell me if you weren't able to go to your home for eight months, how do you know you're even going to have anything to return to, right? You're not making payments on anything. You're not there for your family, et cetera. You know, it puts people in really tough situations. I mentioned a few specific cases we wanted to talk to Kaylee about. The first one being Kimberly Squirrel. Kaylee didn't work with Kimberly, but I thought she could offer a level of expertise and insight based on her history as a corrections officer and because of the role that her organization plays in supporting women, both while they're in prison and when they leave. Here's a CBC News piece explaining what happened to Kimberly. Kimberly Squirrel was a mother and a sister. Her family says she struggled with addiction but was trying to get sober. She froze to death in Saskatoon in January, three days after being released from a correctional facility in Prince Albert. Her family wasn't notified of her release. Sean Fraser with the John Howard Society says it's part of a bigger issue. I think the big challenge that this speaks to is people being released from custody into homelessness. I think that happens all too often. And, uh, you know, in this case, it really was a tragic ending. But all too often we see people being released into homelessness and then they end back up in prison. You know, it can be a revolving door for some people. And that's just uh, silly for us to tolerate that as a society. And it's also one of the most expensive ways for us to deal with incarceration. Fraser says case what is needed for women like Kimberly Squirrel is we need a supported living that is easy to get into so that we're able to create release plans, that lawyers are able to create release plans for when individuals are getting out, whether it is that they're out on conditions for court or whether they're out at the end of their incarceration. There was a lot put on to Pine Grove for that, but I do think, too, we have to look at the full system. Correct. I think yes. Kimberly's memory is not just for us to point fingers at corrections. I think it's for us to reflect as a community and see where in whole the justice system is failing individuals. With the loss of Kimberly, I really just want there to be more housing resources so that somebody's released and they have a safe place and there's somebody there to, you know, do sort of like an accelerated assessment of mental health, of addictions needs. I think that's really what this community needs. With this story fresh in everybody's minds, soon after we learned about Tara, a mother who had been working hard to get her life on track and support her children after spending time in prison. Here's a global news piece talking about what happened to Tara. Tara Marchand says she was evicted on March 29th, 11 days after giving birth. The Saskatoon mother of five couldn't cover the rent and hasn't been able to find a new home. The family is living in a hotel and Marchand says social services told her she could stay there until Friday. I don't want to be separated from my children and I feel like that's the direction that I'm getting pushed into. Marchand says she's filled out dozens of rental applications with no luck. She says the biggest challenges are having few options and bad credit. I've done a lot of work to get to where I am and it just feels like I'm being punished. How's baby doing? Kaylee LaFontaine from the Elizabeth Fry Society is trying to help Marchand find a place. They're calling for... I had met Tara a few years ago at the reintegration unit and that was the first time I had met her. So that's how I knew her. 
the director of the reintegration unit had reached out to me because she had spoken with Tara. Tara had expressed sort of the hardship that she was going through and she sort of knew that there may be an eviction coming up. She was getting behind on some bills. At that point, she was about seven months pregnant. And so she had had the children back in her care after a stint of being incarcerated. And she came to me very vulnerable. And that vulnerability was a new layer that I had really seen in her. I could really tell she was wanting to keep her children in her care. And she had made plans and she was in school for a bit. She'd really been working on battling her own coping mechanisms and addictions, and she was wanting to move forward and, and look for a new housing so that they could kind of have a fresh start. I had connected with her CIS worker, so I was able to speak freely with, with social services on her behalf to make sure that she had her right paperwork in. And we had filled out housing applications and were continuing to be met with rejection. In March, things really started to escalate. She received a letter of eviction from her landlord. We had attended the hearing. We had said, she's expecting any day. I was met with the answer of, that's been the case for how many months she's been about to have this baby. Ugh. Well, that's not how it works. Legitimately, she's going to have this baby any day. That was really frustrating. We were able to extend the eviction notice to the 29th um, of March on the, or the 18th of March. Her youngest little boy came into this world. I actually was there with her when she gave birth. Oh, wow. Huh. It was wonderful to be able to be there, but still, I mean, there's also pending stress of those applications. And so we reached out to a number of organizations and there's a lot of waiting lists. I understand why those organizations have a two-month waiting list because um, there's a fault in our system where we need more supported living, we need more housing, and we need easier access to that. Tara and Kaylee were getting desperate in their search for housing. So Kaylee decided to go public in hopes that it might make a difference. She wrote a letter describing the situation and the systemic barriers they had come up against and posted it on the Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan Facebook page. I spoke to the difficulties in my letter of like actually writing out applications myself to help accelerate her applications. And yeah, it was a, definitely a really eye-opening experience to sit next to Tara through that. And as time went on, it became more and more stressful. It got to the point where uh, on the 29th of March, which I don't know if you remember, was a storm. Oh, really? That was the day. I physically helped her move out of her old place with the kids. I mean, I'm thankful for resources in our city, like uh, the crisis nursery, because we were able to get some of the, the smaller kids there for a couple of hours uh, while we literally balanced getting her stuff into storage, which our organization uh, took care of that those costs. But if we weren't there for that, then who would do that? Or where would her stuff go, right? It would all just be left there. And there were a lot of bigger items that we had to leave behind because we just didn't have the space for it. That looked like her and the kids getting housed at a local hotel, which is common uh, social services procedure for a family. So I'll paint the picture of between March 29th 
and April 8th, Tara and the kids were housed at a local hotel. Um, social services request that you continue to look for housing and that you call in every day to continue to request the emergency shelter. That was okay for the first couple of days. We were able to do that through the local office, which were, were helpful to the best of their abilities. But the caveat is uh, the client service center and accessing the client service center is very difficult. I have no shame in telling anybody that. I have called it multiple times. I've witnessed people call it. I've been on the other side of trying to deal with the client service center. I believe that social services, their intention is that there's somebody managing the money and then that there's somebody who's able to be a support. I can see how they are thinking that that is going to be helpful in the long run, but in crisis, it is not. Around the 5th of April, Tara had to try and get through. She couldn't get through all day and they given the direction that she had to then call client service center and she didn't get through until five o'clock. And that means social services had not approved meals between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. They still hadn't released her benefits at that point. So with no money and five children, you're waiting for the ability to be able go and say, okay, well, I have a, a rec for this amount of food, etc. The stress that that puts on somebody is enormous, especially on someone who's trying to reconnect with her children and trying to be the best parent that she can. That was really hard for me to witness. That happened for two days. And on the second day, I sent her some food from our organization and I that's not something that we can do for everybody and it was just getting to the point where now we cannot do any more that, than we have done. I couldn't do any more than I had been able to provide. I woke up on the morning of April 8th and I just made the decision to write this letter. It was honestly a 5am decision. And I think you can tell by reading it, it came just from the heart. I put my vulnerability into it because it's, it's really all I had left to lean on. I just knew that if something wasn't done, she really would have, could have been left out, you know, at the end of the day on Friday was the deadline that we were given. And the eighth was Thursday. We were working with other organizations as well to try and house her and it was just, no after no after no. When I wrote that letter and I sent it out, within two hours, social services contacted Tara and they had said under no circumstances would she be left, her and her children would be left without the emergency funding. They would support her until they were able to help. At that point, Saskatoon Housing Authority also was calling to say that they'd reconsidered her application. With my help, they quickly did all of the necessary moves and uh, made the necessary calls that by 2 p.m. on Friday, we were able to get keys to her new townhouse with four bedrooms. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah. Which is like, it's a beautiful ending and a hopeful story in some ways in the way that you rallied around her and the way that Elizabeth Fry supported her and her kids. It's a horrifying story in another way that that's what it took, that it took that kind of desperation to get to the point where 
someone would be taken care of and housed. You know, good on you guys for doing what you had to do to advocate for her. And I even failed to mention in that the baby started having some health issues. Two days before I wrote this letter, the baby was housed back in the hospital. Um, So that was another thing to juggle on top of it. The good news is they have a home now and we're working to the best of my ability and, and sort of outsourcing some some stuff as well to just make sure that they have everything that they need to be comfortable. I've had a lot of people in the community reach out, ask how they can help. I had organizations reach out and say like, okay, well, we weren't able to help with housing, but here Comfy provided a huge basket for the family so that they were able to have food security, right? Which is so important. I will mention, because I haven't mentioned it anywhere else, but Main Street even contacted Tara after this uh, letter was released and said, I see that we denied you, but we want to retract that and we see that you're in a need for the housing. So they also offered her housing on the same Friday. What happened next was also very eye-opening for me because I had a lot of people reach out to me. My phone didn't stop ringing for two days. I had like the minister's office and MLAs and leaders in the community just to say like, thank you for writing this letter and thank you for doing this work and just making sure that she's going to be okay and they're going to be okay. What I think is a really important message for people to reflect on is the comments that were made by the general public when it was Tara's face that was in the interview. It was really, really disheartening to see the general public's view on her circumstances and her situation, where my voice and my words were elevated, right? And given praise when you put her face to the picture, the general community was frankly disgusting. And that was really heartbreaking for me. That was really hard to see um, because I don't think that's fair. And I, I am willing to spend the rest of my life elevating the voices of individuals like Tara, but I want this world to be one where people see her as a human being, as a mother, as somebody who is showing up with, you know, the experiences that she's had in her her life has not been easy. I just think that we can't place that judgment on others because then nobody's ever going to learn and grow. It was a unique circumstance, but in the same sense, I think that there are other people like Tara who are out there who still need that support. People need to hear this because Tara's a hero. Like Tara's got strength and courage that the vast majority of us will never understand. I mean, I don't know her. I don't know anything except for what you've told me. But just the strength of a mother, the strength of someone who's had to battle through corrections issues and then finding stability, getting kids back, that takes more courage and strength than anybody in a comment section could ever understand and we need to encourage those people we need to stand with them and behind them not push them down or beat them down while they're already down tara showed up every single one of those days with complete vulnerability saying what's the next step you know she never gave up she continued to fight and that was her strength that she leaned into and that's all her and, and I think you're absolutely right. She is the she's the hero in this. I'm just the person who's standing next to her saying, I want you guys to listen to this story because it matters. The other thing that came to mind as you were sharing there is like, it just goes to show that the help could have been there all along. This didn't have to be this way. And I think so often in our systems that are so broken, 
we're just tied down to this bureaucracy, right? We have these policies and procedures that we put in place and we forget that they're actually there to accommodate us, not so that we can accommodate them. And I think, you know, a situation like this, instead of saying, no, you don't qualify for this, they had just said, you're in a desperate situation. And so we need to bend our procedures to meet the needs of this wonderful family that's trying their best to survive and make it. Yeah. As glad as I am that like someone stepped up at the end, how many times have people not had someone step up because there wasn't a public eye on it? This is what we talk about when we say systemic injustice, right? Like there's so much of it built in. And it's not because the social assistance workers are terrible. It's not because corrections officers are terrible or even that these landlords and housing providers are terrible. It's just we've built this system that we're serving. It's not serving us. Yeah. Can we reform the system? Partially. But we have to start thinking bigger and dreaming big and outside of the boxes that we've built around ourselves. If there's anything I can say to anyone is to extend kindness and to really lean into that. There's power in connecting with people. And I mean, that's really hard to do right now with Mm -hmm. COVID, but there's power in connecting with somebody and, and letting them know that they matter, their situation matters, and that they have somebody to see them and know that they're valid and that they can move on and grow and and that they deserve great things. And I've learned in the last couple of years that if that's what I can do, if I can provide that to even just Tara, for her to know by how I've treated her that she deserves better than what she's had and and I believe in her and I think that she's going to do amazing things, then I'm happy. My name is Brittany Chartrand. I am an SILP and reintegration caseworker. Brittany supports the residents at Souksit Lodge, which is a program that we run here at the John Howard Society of Saskatchewan. It's a six-bed residency program for older men who have found themselves chronically homeless and involved with the justice system. I asked Brittany to tell us more about Souksit and the work that she does. So Suxi is a home for men over the age of 55 um, who have had involvement with the justice system who are also experiencing homelessness. Right now we're focusing on individuals who are sleeping rough, couch surfing, because homelessness is not something that is just, you have to live on the street. But there's sleeping rough, which is sleeping on the street, or there's couch surfing. It's when you don't have a fixed address or you don't have your own home or bedroom or what have you displaced is essentially what it is a lot of the times that money does not cover enough for these individuals to live so you're thinking of rent and food cleaning supplies and utilities all those things and a lot of the time clients end up having to be evicted what we want to do with souk seat and what we have been doing is giving these individuals a leg up so that they can really take the time to work on themselves. We deal with mental health, addictions. We set them up with a food bank if they don't have the means to. We get them hooked up with assistance. My schedule is kind of all over the place, so it's basically to meet the needs of my clients. Suxeet, I work with them usually in the evenings or if they have to go to appointments or whatever. We plan ahead and I take them to those. 
It's hard with Suxi because we are dealing with a higher risk population for this pandemic. So I really try to make sure that I'm doing as much shopping as I can for them uh, with like household materials and stuff like that, that John Howard provides, but making sure that we're upkeeping like cleaning products and stuff like that for the sanitization. I facilitate their house meetings, the house mediations, because, you know, so many different people are living in these houses that not everybody's going to align. I also make sure that everything is kind of in order. So if there's anything with the housing, then I pass that on to my uh, supervisor and stuff like that. And we just basically make sure that everybody's doing okay and they're supported. So sometimes that involves interpersonal relationships, you know, maintaining sobriety, mental health supports, or hooking them up with the food bank, all that stuff. I'm their support while they're living at these houses. What, what is it about you personally that made you think this is the line of work I want to get into? So it's kind of like a, it's like a hit home topic, I guess, close to home. I got into this field because my father was one of those youth that were on the streets and battling homelessness. Um, so from there, that's why I got into youth. And as I've started to work with more adults, I really want to be able to extend that because a lot of people don't know that there are hardly any supports for homeless men above the age of 55. There's nothing. There really isn't. That's, that's a demographic that is completely left out to dry. I want to be able to make a difference and try to help as much as I can. With that being said, like I look at these individuals who I work with and they're the same age as my father. They just need the extra support and that's okay. And everybody needs a leg up in life. The biggest challenge really comes down to like the fact that people are at different stages of their transition. Like some have 10 years on them and then some only have a few days. There's a lot of like navigation that needs to happen there. They need to settle. They need to feel comfortable. It's a big transition to go from being homeless to having a roof over your head and a space that's yours. It's navigating that transition of, you know, this is your space, making sure that they are able to make the decisions that are best for them with support from us. Like we're never going to tell them what to do. They are essentially their own drivers. They have to decide which avenue that they're going to go down and we're just there for the ride. What about on the other, the flip side, kind of what are some of the successes you've seen? Some successes, I think they definitely outweigh the challenges because those interactions with individuals that are like, oh, well, that was a difficult day. But really, these guys are, are just so wonderful. Each and every one of them are just so kind hearted. They make me laugh because <laughs> just these little grandpas and these little mushrooms that just like, <laughs> want to, you know, visit with someone who cares. Brittany got excited as she talked to me about a specific case. Someone who had found some success while living at Suxit Lodge. We'll actually hear from this person at the end of the episode. He really was not doing well. He was in and out of the hospital of the psych ward and stuff like that prior to coming to us. And, and now he's able to relax and he's able to heal and he's got a job now. With the proper support our workers bring to the table with our clients is just beautiful because they're able to make those plans for the future where they weren't able to. It was just making sure that they were okay just for the day. I really think that there needs to be like a harm reduction approach similar to what we're doing at John Howard that needs to be brought into 
the city and surrounding areas for these individuals because we are backed up. Like we have a waiting list. We can only house so many people, but there's such a desperate need for beds to be available for these individuals. And individuals have nowhere to go and they're lucky if they can find a couch to sleep on. We can only take so many people. So there needs to be it's like a call to action. Because we've seen this gap in service, the John Howard Society of Saskatchewan has stepped in to do this work in Regina and Saskatoon. In Saskatoon, we've recently started a program to help incarcerated men find housing and support when they are released. Meet Julia. Okay, so my name is Julia Madre, and I am the reintegration housing caseworker with John Howard Society. I'm kind of the link between corrections and community. So connecting those inmates with those community connections for housing and different different kinds of supports for them. At the moment, most of the referrals are just coming from the correctional institutions, whether that be Regina, PA, or Saskatoon, and then housing in Saskatoon. Um, I've also gotten a couple of referrals from the men's reintegration unit here in Saskatoon as well. So they're living in a halfway house setting, um, but need help finding housing afterwards. Mostly I do an intake with them, see when their release date is, try to figure out what the best option for housing for them is. Treatment maybe might be something that they'd like to do right after being released. Then we can look at that avenue. If they would just like to go straight into a bachelor suite, that's fine too. There's a lot of different housing organizations in the city that I've been in contact with and trying to create those connections with um, to be able to house them. Kind of just case by case at the moment. Only about five of the people that I've worked with so far have been released. One has been successfully housed through our Saskatoon Housing Initiative Partnerships. So I have a connection with them and so sending a referral to them and then they have their own case managers that find housing. And then I can remain on as a support for that person. I've been in contact with them. I know that they're successfully housed, but then there's others that, you know, they don't have the ability to be housed right away. So they have to go into transitional housing like the Lighthouse or Salvation Army for a little while. And then the Lighthouse itself has their own housing department. And because I was there for so long, I have connections there. So sending those referrals in, but still as a support for them. I offer to privately house them as well. Like if they just want to go and room and board or find a private landlord, that's something that I'd be willing to try to tackle as well. It just hasn't come up yet. But some of the challenges have been communication between inmates and myself. I mean, some of them aren't being released until June and they reach out to me, which is fine. But I try to ask them to call me every week, kind of keep me up to date on what is going on and making sure that they're still motivated to do the work. That's one of the challenges so far. I mean, they only get 20 minute calls. So sometimes going through the information that I need is not long enough. So they have to call me the next day or so on and so forth. And another thing is John Howard itself doesn't have housing here in Saskatoon. Like in Regina, there's Suxit, which is great. And I wish that there was something like that in Saskatoon here, like Suxit in Regina, having something like that here would be really beneficial, I think. What gaps do you see when it comes to housing those involved in the justice system? So like more transitional housing, emergency housing like that, because right now there is a revolving door with a lot of our homeless population as they go out then uh, addiction mental health is an issue and then within a week they're breached and they're back in and then they're in there for two weeks and then they get released again and so that's a big gap I don't know a solution to that but have you seen any specific you know successes or what what's been the most rewarding piece of doing this work so far this program in general has been 
a success and creating the relationships with the inmates have been a success. And there's just a lot of support from different organizations in the city and corrections in general that this is so needed. So continuing to like build on that and continuing to build this program to what the needs are is really a success in itself. A lot of the job so far has been advocating and supporting these guys, uh, not necessarily in housing, but also emotionally and setting them up with other supports and making sure that they know that I'm here to listen and things like that. For me, it's not just housing, it's also just being there for them, which they seem to really enjoy. I mean, I get calls, I know their names, they know my name. It's building that relationship and uh, eventually, hopefully, being able to help them and house them effectively in the community. Good afternoon. Hello, hello. Do we have a Yes. Wonderful. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Just having a smoke out in the back here. How's your weekend going so far? Oh, it's not a bad day today. It's hardly any wind. Well, that's good. Yeah, so Can't nice sunny Saskatchewan day. Yeah, yeah. That's that's putting it nicely. I mean, isn't it like minus 30 something out there? <laughs> yeah, but that's all right. It's no wind. You got that positive attitude. Well done. We're going to call this guest Joe. Joe lives at Suksit Lodge. This is the person who Brittany was telling us about before, who has found success while living at Suksit. Joe was gracious enough to share a little bit about his experience. I'm willing to share what I know from experience. Uh, I'll share my story. I prefer to remain anonymous. The reason why simply is that my name's not important. What's important is the message. The message that I do have is my experience in life. And I've been lucky enough to be taught by elders. And those words have been passed on to me. And those words are true. It's pretty simple stuff. But I had to go to... Well, absolute, absolute bottom that I was willing to take my life. I just kind of gave up all hope, all belief, everything. I was 126 pounds. I'm six foot two. I saw the weight. That, that's when I was, went to the hospital. That just blew me away. I didn't see it. And that's, uh, that's what stress can do. And you don't know the extent of the stress you were actually in until you're out of it. I mean, physically, mentally, spiritually, I was bankrupt. I just basically, I'm not sure if you're familiar, I did with the 12-step program. Oh, okay, yeah. It's a way of living. It happened uh, to be put together by a bunch of drunks, a very simple way of, of living. And you believe in a power greater than myself to whatever that might be. Essentially, I did a step three. I, I was looking at being homeless and uh, uh, being released from the hospital with nowhere to go. You heard Joe mention being suicidal. He had been out of prison for some time and stably housed, but then he came up against his own health issues. Knowing that he didn't have a home waiting for him, he started to give up hope. I made that decision two days before my release because 
Exactly. I absolutely had nowhere to go. I was simply not going to be on the street. That's all there was to it. Out of the blue, my parole officer asked me if I'd be up to John Howard Society's living. You know, it would be in the shared home, and I'm quite familiar with this type of living. Long story short was that I did a step three and said, well, you know, here I am. I don't know what to do and just kind of gathered all my burden and threw it up in the air and I mm. said, it's up to you. Either I'll be living or I'll be dead. One of the two. Thankfully, Joe chose to live. Around Christmas time, Joe gave a letter to our staff, a beautiful letter, speaking of the hope that he had found. He gave me permission to share it with you. I was suicidal and all loss of hope. Nowhere to turn, homeless. I had given up. This is just two days before being released. Total black, no choices, but one. Then I got a call. It was my parole officer who knew of my situation. She offered the John Howard Society as hope. I thought, why did she do this? It's not her job. Why would she care? We haven't even met. With no choice and no hope, I agreed. I trusted her. The next morning, I was in contact with Ryan, who instilled hope with his voice. He informed me of the John Howard Society's mission and shared a real interest in me. I trusted him. The following day, I met Ryan at the house. I was still prepared for the worst and my final choice. After the tour and what they said they'd offer, I was given a choice whether I wanted to stay. Ryan didn't know what was at stake. My final choice was to accept the help and support that was freely given. I had two choices. I could choose to live or not to. I chose hope. I stayed. You saved my life. Thank you. I get up every day now the way I used to. It's just like, yeah, okay, what's going to happen today? Let's go for it. Sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's not so good, you know, but the shit happens. And it's how you react to shit is a measure of a person. How many times do you get knocked down? How many times do you get back up? And I was at the point I didn't want to get back up. Sometimes what it takes to succeed after leaving prison is complicated. There's work to be done, and change isn't always easy. But sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes it's as simple as a home and to know that people care and that someone's in your corner. Most people who go to prison are going to end up back in society. So the question we have to ask ourselves is whether we want them to succeed or not. Are we going to settle for people ending up homeless back in prison? Or are we going to search for solutions and do the things that we know we need to do? Sometimes things are a lot simpler than we make them out to be. Special thanks to Kaylee LaFontaine for taking the time to chat with us on this episode. Kaylee is the new executive director at Elizabeth Fry Sask. We love the Elizabeth Fry Society and everything they're doing. Make sure you check out their work and give them your support. 
Thanks to Brittany Chartrand and Julia Madre. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to come and chat with us. You're both doing incredible work, and we're so glad you're at the John Howard Society. I also need to give a shout out to Ryan McCorriston. He's another one of our reintegration caseworkers. In the letter I read from Joe, you heard him mention a guy named Ryan. Ryan is the person that offered Joe some hope at the darkest time in his life. And so I just wanted to make sure I recognized Ryan and gave him a shout out for his incredible work. Good job, Ryan. A special thanks to Joe. Even though you're anonymous, Joe, I just hope you understand how much we all admire your courage and heart. You also heard about some John Howard programs, and so I want to give a shout out to a few people who have offered some support since we recorded these episodes. You heard from Julia in Saskatoon and the new housing program that we started. Since I talked with Julie, we've actually been funded to increase and expand that program. So I want to give a shout out to the City of Saskatoon, United Way Saskatoon, and to the Saskatoon Housing Initiatives Partnership. Thanks so much for your support. We really could not do this without you. It's going to change lives and we're so grateful. As always, big thanks to our CEO, Sean Fraser, for helping us produce this episode. So I want to encourage you as we close today to connect with us on social media. We use Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We love engaging on there. We like to share about these issues on there as well. And we are more than happy to have conversations with you. So please like and follow and all that fun stuff. We're going to add our links in the episode notes so that you know where you can connect with us. You know, this is our fourth episode and we're always continuing to refine the podcast. So if you have suggestions, feedback, topic ideas, or maybe guest ideas, or people we should have on the show, don't ever hesitate to reach out. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms and send us a message. If you're interested in learning more about John Howard Society of Saskatchewan, you can visit our website at sk.johnhoward.ca. We have a programs page that's going to tell you about all our various justice and social programs and go through in detail what we're all about. We're also running a capital campaign right now for Lulu's Lodge, our LGBTQ2S plus transitional youth shelter. We bought a bigger and better home last year to support the kids, and so we'd love your help paying off the mortgage, freeing up resources to support the youth in our care. So you can find that on our website as well if you're able to contribute. We're going to be back with another episode soon, so if you're enjoying this content and you want to hear more, follow us on social media and we'll keep you in tune to what's coming next. Don't forget to rate us and subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts. Thanks everybody for joining us and we'll talk with you soon. Have a great day. Thank you.